This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. Hello, I'm Brian Alexander. And we're going to talk about The Lost World, a 1912 novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I'd never read it before, but I pretty much knew the story um, from all the other dinosaur books. <laughs> but uh, it's still a great read, I think. Uh, How did you absolutely. enjoy it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I first read an abridged version of this when I think I was eight. Um, fairly heavily abridged. <laughs> um, with uh, some wonderful illustrations by a chap called Tom Barling. We also did illustrated uh, abridged versions of uh, Dracula and Frankenstein as well. Nice. Um, That's not the Ladybird edition. Oh no, it? no, the, the Ladybird edition was a little, a little after then. Um, but yeah, I did read that as well though. Um, and then of course you do later on. I found the actual proper book in the library and um, saw various of the film versions of it and various well. Being a small boy, as we all are, into dinosaurs, so nearly everything else that Lost World had inspired from Kong to Valley of Gwangi. Um, but I've not, I've not reread it for a while, and um, coming back to it this time, I didn't realise how funny it was. Yeah, it's full um, of jokes. Uh, <laughs> it seems like jokes. Yeah, and slapstick I mean, and just witty banter and challenger is. So, so he's larger a, he's than life. Sort of <laughs> mm. he's, he's, he's a greater sort of caricature of some sort of. Uh, I think one of the reviews of it said, you know, they. Oh, maybe it was right in that PDF, the uh, serialization. It's added a new kind of character to the pantheon of British characters, you know? Yes. He's 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 an awesome character, and I don't. I'm not a character guy, but I'm like I love Challenger. He's awesome. He's a role model for us all. <laughs> he's he's Brian Blessed. That's who he is. Yeah, yes. you know that's funny that Brian Blessed has never played him, as far as I know. Because um, I uh, in in my uh, prep for this, I listened to every audio drama that I could lay my hands on. I watched every movie I could lay my hands on. Uh, there was a comic book, but it was just an adaptation of the movie, and uh, they they always they always change something here or there, but the book is just amazing, and you can see why uh, it gets copied so much, including by uh, guy Edgar Rice Burroughs, who does basically the same story, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's how I came about this. I I first read. Um the Edgar Rice Burroughs one. And, the Land That Time Forgot. Yeah, and I saw a, a TV movie of it and, and just fell in love with it. You know, like I built um, sets for it out of Legos, like, you know, I had a <laughs> submarine, I thought it was the U-boat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, uh, and then I think I either read an abridged version or a Classics Illustrated version or some other slighter version of this book as a kid. And then uh, I didn't come back to it until I was an adult, from a completely sideways angle, one of my uh, favorite philosophers um, is the uh, late uh, Gilles Deleuze, uh, French philosopher, 
who um, uh, wrote just some extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. I can't possibly summarize here. Um, but he and a friend wrote this book, which is one of my favorite books, called The Thousand Plateau. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard to describe what an incredibly strange and delightful book it is. But halfway through it, it begins by invoking Professor Challenger as a character. And, <laughs> and here, let me see if I can get, get the quote. This is great. Uh, Professor Challenger made the earth scream with his pain machine, as described by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, giving a lecture, mixing textbooks in geology and biology in a fashion befitting his simian disposition. Yeah, I think there, there's a Challenger book uh, where he digs, he drills a hole to the center of the earth and then discovers that the earth, there's something alive down there. Yes, oh. it's a short, short story called uh, When the World Screamed. That's got to be it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Because there's two other challenge novels. There's the, the Poison Belt and oh. the Land of Mist. I want to read and, that one. I want to read uh, that one. And two, two short stories, When the World Screamed and The uh, Disintegration Machine. I've read The Disintegration Machine, and now there's one called The Land of the Mists, which yes. I want to talk about later. Mm. Um, mm. But... That that one I think is where you know he killed the series. <laughs> well, Poison Belt is uh, is heartbreaking. It's such a completely different book. It's uh, it's an end of the world story, mm-hmm. and it's um, uh, nothing happens. I mean, in terms of plot, it's mostly Challenger invites some friends of his to go to his house and explains that the world is about to be destroyed and how they're going to do something to survive for a couple more weeks, but it won't matter because they all die. And awesome. and that's the plot. I mean, it's it's um you could do it as a stage play with a single set. Uh, That'd be cool. And it's uh what's what's funny. I mean, remember his wife in the early in the book? Oh yes, yes. Makes her sit in the humiliation chair. <laughs> well, the, the, <laughs> the book is it's um, the main the the heart of Poison Belt is his relationship with his wife as they decide they're going to die. Um, and I, I just went to the Wikipedia page for it, and the first edition has. Challenger and his wife embracing. Right. Uh, you know, what's in my researches of Conan Doyle's um, appearances in The Strand, um, the covers for the British editions of The Strand are really boring. They generally just have the same image of, you know, a street in London and then whatever book they're promoting mm-hmm. that's inside the book. But the American editions, right after this, uh, this one comes out, they're all covers of Challenger, hmm. uh, and they are full color, and they are amazing, really great images, and, and it's like, you can see, this is like, they knew what gold they'd found. Yeah. Just great stuff. And the, I think the British editions didn't do that, they stuck with the sort of stodgy covers, but the American editions are like, you know, they're competing with the, with, I don't know, Argosy and... Oh, yeah. Lynn Fleece mm-hmm. and... All those great comics are not comics, but uh, pulps. Mm-hmm. So uh, the other book that I thought of that made me, I guess, excited about this book, and, and it, it just sort of reoccurred to me while I was listening, is, hey, this is the exact same story, not just as The Land That Time Forgot, but as Herland as well yes. by uh, totally. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's three guys, not four, uh, go by balloon to a plateau in Brazil or Venezuela, right? And discover not dinosaurs, but 
women. Uh, society of women. And I just thought, holy crap, it's the same story. It it basically works uh, very similarly in the structure, right? The mm-hmm. guy's going there. Um, but uh, <laughs> sort of for a different purpose. And I think that is 1915. So... Um, you know, and and Burroughs is is uh, I think 1917. So everybody's read The Lost World, right? It, there's nobody who hasn't read it at this point. Yeah, it's probably the, the, probably influence on Lost Horizon as well from 1933. Sure, yeah. That's another journey to um, a lost plateau, but in that and case, it's uh, Tibetan sages rather than dinosaurs. That ties in also to a really terrible adaptation of this book. Um, I think it was the 1998. Um, quickie movie that came out right after Jurassic Park, The Lost World. You oh, know, they, oh, yes, I've seen that. That was terrible. Ooh. That was very bad. And not only does it, you know, play fast and loose with the story, it it moves it to, uh, I think, Mongolia? <laughs> where all these dinosaurs, like, they, they have to wear jackets uh, because it's so cold there, all these cold-blooded dinosaurs are supposed to be running around. Okay, even if the dinosaurs are not cold-blooded, I still think they'd have feathers or fur or something, you know, to keep <laughs> them warm. So, uh, I don't know. I, I guess they couldn't afford to film in a in a warm location with tropical forests, so they had to film wherever the movie studio was. Somewhere cheap and desolate, that's my impression. It was terrible. Just a terrible... They could have done New Jersey, if only they'd known. (laughs) You know, the the other thing that is interesting in the other adaptations is that uh, often, Summerlee is turned into a woman. Really? Yeah, sometimes they just shoehorn in a woman into the story like, I'm an adventurous and I'm going with with you, gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes they, they uh, so the, one of the better, the 2011 BBC audio drama adaptation, the two-part one, yes, um, yeah. Lee is Diana Summerlee. She's a professor. Diana. Yeah. And so they managed to, you know, get a female into the story other than, you know, at the very beginning and the very end. But otherwise, this is, uh, you know, entirely a male book. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it gave me a couple of thoughts. One was it reminded me very much of Dracula, the um, the way that Dracula assembles the team of adventurers who get to expel Dracula from Britain and then track him down <laughs> to his lair. But but interestingly, like Dracula, you have this uh, sacrificial figure of the American uh, hmm. who stands in for an extra amount of courage and boldness. Because, you know, in Dracula, you've got our, our mad Texan who has to die um, at the end, but he gets revivified because the child gets his name. Um, mm-hmm. And here, of course, it's uh, Maple White Land. Right. It, it, it kinda That's reminds, the child. Yep. It kind of reminds me of, uh, of Jules Verne and from, you know, from the Earth to the Moon, where he says, you know, well, who, who else would build a giant cannon and blast someone into space? Oh, it's got to be the Americans, right? You know, nobody else would be this gonzo. Um, but, but because this is a British book, or both of those are British books, Dracula and Lost World, they, um, it has to be contained. The, the British pick up where the Americans left off. So, you know, Maple White dies, but, uh, you know, the British heroically scale the plateau. And both, just to, just to finish that, both uh, books have a, a major role played by a noble, uh, Lord Holmwood. In uh, Dracula, yes. and here, and here, the invincible Lord John Roxton. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, it's 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 interesting. Lord John Roxton, I, I think we should talk about him. He's, he's got a, a pretty amazing name. Lord John Roxton. Um, they, they've all got pretty amazing names. He um, rocks. <laughs> he rocks. I get the sense that he's older. Um, in Usually in the adaptations, they make him a young sort of uh, heroic type. Um, but I get the sense that he's sort of older in the book here. Yeah, so in one of the BBC adaptations, he's um, uh, the one that's in the 3D C- 3CD set. In, in right. that, you get he, he's more kind of um, your older gent and very laconic, uh, which I, I think does suit him. Because I think kind of in terms of sort of archetypes, you have um, the, uh, the, the uh, sort of young squire farm boy made good sort of archetype in uh, the figure of you know, uh, narrator Malone. Uh-huh. Uh, you've got the established hero, Lord Roxton, and then you've got the wise sage, which is Challenger. Right. And the comic relief in, uh, in Summerlee. Yes, yeah. And uh, normally, like, I'm not sure Summerlee is supposed to be comic relief ex- from the very beginning, but... He he kind of does that job, and yet so does Challenger, right? Well, they the form kind of a double act with their kind yeah. of uh, their squabbling, which becomes more and more good-natured yes. as the expedition goes on, which is a nice way of handling it, um, I think. Cause it kind of, you can understand why Challenger rubs people up the wrong way. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> the towering bastard that he is. <laughs> well, you understand why somebody, you know, he's a munch, modern day Munchausen, but they sort of yeah. quite graciously, through humour, come to respect each other. But, and, um, you know, Channing speaks very warmly of Summerlee by the end at the, uh, at the, the return conference at the, the Royal Academy. Yes, yes, and then Summerlee defending uh, the expedition. Against uh, mm-hmm. Healingsworth, is it? Yes, yeah. Another great name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come back to, to women again because that was something that caught me as I as I was reading this. Uh, one is that the frame of the book is um, is our hero's doomed love for Gladys, right? And um, and there's Gladys who's standing like some kind of um, evolutionary biology exemplar. You know, she's like, yeah. I can't have just any guy. I got to have one who's super manly. And uh, and then you know we name the and then our hero does it. He, he, this is what spurs him on. Then he goes off and does this thing, and then names the lake after her. Yeah, the central lake, and uh, which is the hollow in the middle, a nice kind of vaginal you know, symbol. And, <laughs> and then uh, and then he comes back, and you know she's married to some clerk, right? She's married to uh, Jonathan Harker, basically, and uh, and you know that's so that's one thing that I. I it's also the flip side is this is a this is a book and I can't help but read this in nineteen as nineteen twelve book. You know, you get nineteen hundred to nineteen fourteen, you get America, Britain, a few other countries crazed with the idea they're becoming soft, that they need to become more masculine. You know, this is when the Boy Scouts appear, this is where uh William mm. James mm. declares that we should have a, a moral equivalent to war and you know, Teddy Roosevelt's like, No, screw that, we need war you know, and uh at the beginning of this book is this like testosterone shot, right? You know, you get 
Challenger beating people up and throwing them downstairs, and you get. I love that scene. It's it's just like <laughs> it's a cartoon. <laughs> you're right? a reporter. You're a reporter. Out of my house. Let's have a fist fight. Right <laughs> down into the street. They're wheeling down, and the cop shows up. And then remember, remember Roxton's test. You know, my my friend is drunk and has the DTs, and uh, we need to. And he's got a revolver, so we need to charge him. And uh, don't worry, you might get shot, but you'll be okay. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like, you know, this it's this hyper-manly book. And then what follows is all just, you know, great cracking boys adventure. We get gunfire, torture, exploration. You know, it's... Um, there's, a, there's a genocide almost yeah. in there as well. Yeah, uh, and slavery. Yeah, the, the, the amazing... I, I tweeted this yesterday, I think it was. It's like I, I was reading... Oh, I watched the 1960 movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, and compare that to the like the 2001 adaptation movie version, which I think is pretty good. That's a BBC TV one. Mm. And then compare that to this book, and it's like these are radically, radically different sort of stories. That the, the 2011 adaptation, you know, adds a woman. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, what does that do? Well, it adds, uh, you know, sort of there's a, a romance between Malone and and uh, and Professor Summerlee in there, and that that's interesting because like. Who's the audience, right? Well, the audience is everyone now, right? And there were professors that were female back then, but probably not very many, and probably not any who would, you know, very be few. accepted on this kind of sort of expedition. So it's sort of ahistorical. But yeah. the 1960 adaptation, is, you know, they shoehorn in uh, two women. Into the into the story, one is just an added woman who just insists on going on the trip. Um, she's in love with Roxton, and then uh, the prince of the Indians is turned into a princess. Ah, which I think is an obvious fix. And if if uh, well, fix, I don't know, fix. It's an obvious change, and of course that is the change that every uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs book does. Right? Yes. Yes. Right. Totally change. You know, this is the most obvious change we can have because now our lead hero cannot be in love with science; he can be in love with the princess, who he gets to rescue. That's right, mm-hmm. many times. Well, the book has 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 a, a hints of that. There's the bit where the uh, Indians, where our hero is trying to translate what the Indians are saying about the necessity of going to war against the ape men, and the climax of it is we got to go to war against the ape men; otherwise, we couldn't go back to our women. That's right. <laughs> They'll be ashamed of us. Yes. Um, and then when he when he goes to when our hero goes to the ape the ape men uh, city, it's which I, I keep in my mind's eye. I see is like ape city from Planet of the Apes, right? Yeah. Well, well, I was um, going to say there is. You can see a seed of. I'm um, not sure much the book, but certainly the movie, the Rod Serling Penn movie, Planet of the Apes, in this yeah. uh, conflict yeah. between the primitive humans and and the ape men. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, except this is the exact opposite politics of Sterling. You know, where is the, it in the book? I think it's in the book. I, I'm I, I I get confused now which version has which, but I think there's a speech in this saying the the conflict we are seeing here now is the kind of conflict that our you know these are one of the great scenes of history. Yes, that's challenging. The Neanderthals yes. are being yes. destroyed. And I was like, yeah, that is what happened in the Neanderthals. And they were thinking about that back then, right? He's like, uh, one of my friends is reading a book called The Red Queen, which is all about, uh, about you know, how violence is sort of 
and sexual uh, sexual dominance and violence are sort of built into human beings because that's you know how nature programs its winners is you know they take over and destroy everything that is in their way um, and it's like that this is a very that's the difference between a book from 1912 and a you know movie adaptation from 1960 is that is it's not about gender roles and you know how women yeah. fit into society it's about uh racism that's what the 1920s are about is it's it's you know the superiority or inferiority of your particular race right and there's a great line in in this book uh, that I think is really interesting because Conan Doyle he's ta- he ta- this book isn't exactly about race but it totally gets in t- to talking about it here and there in its plot and such. But there's a great line. Challenger says, these Indians are, are so degraded. They're barely above the level of the average Englishman. I love that. <laughs> average Londoner. Right. It's like, wow. <laughs> it's like a backslap of backhanded compliment of racism. It, it's very, I mean, no matter how stupid we all think Conan Doyle is for going into spiritualism, he is not as all that stupid. He's wise in many ways. Yeah. I think this exact way to deal with the if you were alive in the nineteen teens and seeing everybody and every newspaper article and every magazine story being about race and going soft and how you can't do miscegenation and all that. This is the way to deal with it is through backhanded humorous comments. But otherwise, but, but that's, that's in, that's in challenger's voice. I mean, otherwise Malone is, uh, and the other guys are happy to talk about their good Negro Zambo. That's Um, true. And, uh, there's the, the other thing that really got me this time was the, um, the real blurring of evolutionary, uh, steps that, you know, we keep being told, you know, these are the, the Indians, they're below us. And then there's the eight men or even further below us. So we've got this big ladder you know, of evolution and yet we keep falling down it. You know, they, when they, when, when the, um, when they make the attack, the nearly genocidal attack on the eight men, the description of rage that, uh, that they feel is, is not elegant. It's not civilization. It's, you know, what, um, Kipling called, you know, the red mist, uh, mm. it's savage. Uh, and you know, you get the, the ape, you get the Indians fighting for the respect of their women. It's just what Malone is doing for glad. Yeah, totally. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a kind of like a heart of darkness. But it'll get you get into world war one too, right? Exactly. That's the white feather. Oh, no. Handing out. No, I'm, I'm seeing this just looking two years ahead. And of course, you know, you mentioned spiritualism in part, it's because Doyle loses his son. Um, but we, we get the, um, it, it, it you know, this is contemporary of uh, of uh, Heart of Darkness, right? And and you get something similar there. There's a, there's a hint that the the strict separation of civilized and civilizer is is breaking down. Um, but but at the end it, it doesn't matter. They they leave. They can they exit the plateau under their own power. You know they get back home and uh, they get rich because the yep. uh, Roxton has a mm. ton of rocks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the girlfriend's name before she gets married? It, it's it's really funny. Your last it's, name? Yeah, it was like she. Her name is uh, like 
hunger for she hungers for it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all of the names are hilarious. Well, oh, well, this is this is you know I mentioned evolutionary biology or or evolutionary psychology. You know, is the the whole the whole sense that you get. Um, um, Hungerford. Yeah, that's actually the first the first sentence of uh, chapter one is Mr. Hungerford, her father. Um, you know, and in Oedipal terms, it's kind of interesting that uh, he disappears. That Hungerford is Mr. Hungerford is useless. That it's entirely between Malone and Gladys. Um, but you know, it's it's this. It's the the model is the uh, if I can be brief. You know, the the male is the one with. Um, uh, who has to, you know, prove the ability to care for a large number of children and, and hence rove around and accomplish things. And then the female is the egg and child tender. I mean, that's the that's the cartoon version, but that's what these guys argue. And this book seems like a, a classic case for that, except at the end, um, you know, Gladys leaves. There's no contest. He doesn't even try and get her back. He just mocks her husband. And, and, and that's the end. But they get money. A lot, of and, and they get subsequent adventures too. I think Malone and uh, Roxton are back, and uh, maybe Summerlee too for Poison Belt. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, and uh, oh, her new name is Gladys Potts. Potts, <laughs> Love yeah, That's, the potted plant, yeah. Uh, it's uh, that's what's so fun about this book is it's full of humor. Um, you know, there there are sh- shades of humor in in other Doyles stories and such but I, I i just love this is so fun it's a rollicking adventure well, that re- i was going to say this when we began the show is that i i was amazed at just how much stuff happens in this short book it is um uh, if you're going to abridge it it's going to be have to be line by line because there's so much going on that you there's nothing really to cut that is bad no the right? only the only thing i get i hate abridgments i passionately hate abridgments but I guess the only thing you, if you want to make this a pure adventure, is you might reduce the uh, scientific language, you know, because this is this is a science fiction novel. You know, you get classic, you know, Summerlee and uh, Challenger are doing good scientific analysis, and you and you get that classic science fiction dodge when they, after a while, the point of view character says, uh, "I don't understand this anymore. Speak English," or, you know, it, it's like I love that the opening line about the. The uh, yeah, the test that he he gives to Malone, right? He says, is this psychoplasm right. different from the parthenogenic egg? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> poor Malone. He's like, yes, yeah, whatever you say, man. Oh God. <laughs> but uh, there's reason. There's reason to fear reporters of this era, right? They're not. Uh, yeah, you know, they are looking for dirt to put on their headlines. You know. Well, I think the thing, what's remarkable um, is, is when you read Challenger holding forth, and it is a running joke about his comments about reporters throughout the book, um, is that, you know, his view of the press was very sophisticated. I mean, we tend to think that our media is going to hell in a handbasket, it's become debased and cheap. Well, this clearly shows us, actually, that's always been the case. (laughs) Well, it was was more... But in in that case, you know, they would pay reporters to go on these big long trips, right? Mm. They would they would pay reporters to go around and dig up whatever scandalous dirt. Now it's like the reporters just report on what other people have tweeted about. I mean, there are there are ones that don't do that, but it, it, there was a lot more money in newspapers back then, right? They they could make a ton of 
uh, money by having something interesting to talk about for weeks on end. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, one, one thing is this is uh, only a couple decades into the uh, rollout of the telegraph. So you, this is when the wire services are very big, mm. you know, uh, Reuters and APIs. So you get, um, you can actually transmit something from far away at pretty good speed. Um, and you also get, um, you know, but journalism at the time is also, it depends. I mean, like today, you know, there's a there's a variety, so you get really sustained stuff. I mean, if I go back to Dracula, which is, you know, uh, 15 years before this, we get um, uh, some detailed, really long uh, columns embedded in the book when they talk about the uh, arrival of Dracula in England. I mean, they don't know it's Dracula, but um, the descriptions of that. Or you read contemporary mm. accounts of the Balkan Wars. They're really mm. long. I mean, they're furious. They're often yellow journalism, but they're really yeah. detailed and sustained. Um I mean, we have yellow journalism today too. It's, hmm. it's, it's, but it's government driven rather than. Well, it it can be. I mean, I mean, in in the U.S., you know, we've got our our Fox News, which is nominally independent, although it basically functions as a wing of the Republican Party. I was thinking in the New York Times. Myself. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 classic. I mean, but but I I don't know, Jim. I I think I think you know, if you look at TV journalism, it's really, well. I mean, I think you guys do it better than we do uh, in the UK, but we, uh, I mean, if you look at TV journalism from the 60s and 70s and compare it to now, it's just embarrassing. It's yeah. it, it's like watching someone have a stroke, you know, because we, <laughs> um, and and I think I think that's dropped. But, but the, well, I think the difference the is, is uh, uh, in ages past, and certainly of the journalist Conan Doyle was writing about, um, the, the narrow, the kind of framing divisive news was such and such has happened as has happened in such and such a place. This place is here, here and here, geography lesson. The people who live here are this, this and this. This is the politics and this is what's happened and this is what it means for, for Britain or for America or for, you know, what the salient points for your reading audience. Um, I mean, now as a, a senior yeah. um, TV journalist remarked on um, a little a little sort of... Uh, sh- um, film piece he did for a satirical news show he said now the news's narrative is pointing at pictures going oh dear <laughs> well, you there's, like no, a, there's no explanation of the context or the background it's yeah. such and such happened and isn't it terrible look at these upsetting pictures you sound like um uh what's, what's his name he does Newswipe. uh Charlie, That's Charlie Brooker. Brooker. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This, that, the piece I'm referring to, it was in one of his uh, Newswipe or, or Screenwipe shows from a, a yeah. senior political journalist. And it's a fair point. I mean, um, although the Yellow Press was, you know, they still had the power to, you know, completely you know, destroy people in Conan Doyle's day, and indeed did. Uh, at the same time, this was the great day, as you say, where you have these very in-depth news reports that tells you everything you need to know about the story in like, an encyclopedic fashion. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also the day you know, the day where you know the Victorians did have a high information culture. You in mm-hmm. England you had five posts a day, letters, five constant tele, you know telegraph deliveries, and um, you know a major newspaper might put out three different editions in a day. There'd be an early mm-hmm. edition coming out like three in the morning, uh, mm. the morning edition, then an evening edition of where stories are often completely disappeared and new ones were put in to reflect the speed mm. of the changing times. Mm. What rapid. Isn't the uh, narrator of War of the Worlds a newspaper guy? Uh, I believe he is, isn't he? Uh, 
I don't know. He 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 does not. He's not doing his job. <laughs> well, he, he, he does the he does the beginning after the first appearance. He goes to file a story, but then uh, but then yeah. In the TV version or the uh, sorry the movie version, he's a news reporter, right? Isn't he? One of them, I think. Or maybe maybe that's just a famous scene in the radio drama. I guess. Yeah, the radio. He's a radio. Well, reporter. Jim, Jim, you're you're absolutely right. I'm. I'm halfway through a book right now, which is really uh, haunting me. It's um, a book by a British journalist called Philip Gibbs, and he was a um, in 1914 he uh, filed dispatches from the front, and uh, it turned out that he was heavily censored. Both mm. he was told what he could say, what he couldn't say, but also his dispatches would then be censored afterwards. And so a few years later, he published basically everything that he couldn't say in a book with a very dramatic title, Now It Can Be Told, mm. which is a remarkable, horrifying book. I mean, it's, it's, the, um, it's not like today we see World War I as a happy event, uh, but this is, this is a very, very powerful book. And it's, it's huge. It's, I don't know, 300 pages, and it's, uh, it's kind of frantic, but it's, uh, there's a lot of dialogue, but it's, it's very, very detailed and extensive. I'm, I'm trying to imagine someone like you know, any TV reporter from today doing this. I mean, I can't imagine a TV reporter writing a complete sentence, you know, much less a, a <laughs> book like this. No. So uh, one, one of the other things I wanted to talk about is the hoax aspect of the book. I, I think this is really interesting because I think it plays into the science and sort of his own problem with science. Uh, that is Doyle's own problem with science. So uh, we're, we're told at the beginning of the book, you know, he's going to send in the reports. He sends in the reports um, to the journalist, I guess, right before they get cut off by the knocking down of the of the tree bridge. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the end, we find out, oh, all of these reports on the location of this plateau uh, they have all been falsified. And the reason is, well, because we don't want all... It's not really made clear, but I guess we're led to conclude that it's to protect the plateau. In in the sense that we don't want to have all those dinosaurs maybe hunted out by Roxton's you know, contemporaries or something. It's not really made clear. Uh, but on the other hand, in the original illustrations, <laughs> right, it is quasi-hoax. I think if you were a little bit naive, if you're a young person reading this, you might not know that it's <laughs> it's not a, a true story because, you know, I mean, even Sherlock Holmes, the way those stories are told, my friend Sherlock Holmes, right, as told to Dr. Mm-hmm. John Watson, who's running writing these stories. Yes. I, I, I myself, I really like this style of technique, but... Uh, it does go pretty far. I mean, they've got photographs of Doyle dressed up like Challenger. Mm-hmm. There's, there's Maple White has signed some of the pictures. <laughs> um, and that then added with that at the end that, you know, this is not, although the, this is a real place and this is a true story, we're not going to actually give you the location. Um, I think it, doing it like a hoax sort of, well, I guess... If it's a hoax, you don't tell people it's a hoax, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, what what effect does that have on the storytelling? Because it, it in the next book, right, he destroys the world, doesn't yeah. he? Well, uh, I, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, okay, but the 
No, I, but people would notice that is what I'm saying. <laughs> you think, right? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, between bouts of TMZ, I, I saw that. Right. But um, no, I, I think I think this does a couple of things that that I think are are, are important. One is that um, it, it plays with the evidence nature, um, as you say. You know that. Well, here's this land, but we can't tell you about it. I mean, which which I read pretty cynically as we are preserving our our information monopoly over it. Right. And then at the very end, we're preserving our our financial monopoly. Right. Because right. Roxton only gets a, a handful of rocks. Right. But um, uh, the and, and it's fun to see that. I mean, it, it, it's it's you know, you get to play with the details of it. And then and then that ties into Doyle's own real skill of of description where it's both beautiful but not lyrical, just just really meticulously described. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that that ties in some really nice ways. I mean, compared to Frankenstein, where um, at the end of the book, um, Walton keeps asking Victor, uh, come on, tell me how you did it. And Victor's like, no, I, I really shouldn't. <laughs> It'd be wrong, you know. And, and and that book has very little description, actually, yeah. in details. Um, the the other thing this does that I that I find so fascinating, I'm really glad you brought this up, uh, Jesse. Is this is kind of unique to the English or the English language tradition of the novel that the British figured out the novel really late. They only started doing it in the 1600s, really, the early 1700s, way after everybody else had been doing the novel for some time. Uh, so they caught up with a vengeance. And one of the things they did was they had a tradition of a very realistic novel that nobody else was doing. Their stuff was very socially realistic, very physically realistic, very detailed, very practical. Um, people often call it, you know, kind of Protestant novel, very hard-headed. Um, and one of the side effects of this that you get is throughout the history of the novel, people asking if a novel is real. You know, mm. like, is Robinson Crusoe real? Uh, mm-hmm. People mm. sending um, letters to people, you know, asking if so-and-so is okay, Um you know, uh, you get a lot of imitations and a lot of follow-ups. And then people play games with it. Like one of the art, for my money, the first great gothic story, um, you know, by Walpole uh, has this. The Castle of Otranto begins with a. Oh, I didn't write this. I found this manuscript. See, and it was I, in, a, in a chest. And, and here, I'm just going to present it, just so you make you know you figure out what to do with it. Here it is. Um, so I, I I I enjoyed that that historical flavor. I mean. Poe does this, right? Because Poe yeah. always play. I mean, he's not a very realistic writer in in that sense. He's obviously a great creator of fantasy, um, but he always plays games with evidence, like the the big hoax, the moon hoax, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people are very. Uh, so I, I I think I think this book does both. It, it gets to play games with evidence, it gets to draw on that tradition. Well, it's sort of moving it's, away from the uh, the idea of having an omnipotent storyteller. And it's mm-hmm. asking that sort of that metatextual mm-hmm. question is kind of, or if this happened, who is telling the story? And it kind of obviously, I mean, like in the case of Poe, a lot of his stories you can read as written confessions by an assorted deranged mm-hmm. individuals. Where you know, whereas uh, that's only so far because you run into the you know the classic problem of someone's writing these down as a diary. <laughs> yes, it's kind of you know you, you get kind of what bad imitators of Lovecraft do. You know, you end up with stories ending, and now I can hear the slithering in the hall. <laughs> the stop writing, dude! Run, run. Um, well, and so, Lovecraft you know, did do that, though. <laughs> I love did, it. He did, but uh, it's a whole matter that the imitators always do it, yeah. the bad ones in particular. But, um, 
you know, you get around that. I mean, Dracula is a good example of this because that's kind of in its construction, it's kind of the literary equivalent of found footage. It is a parcel of documents, Mm -hmm. and uh, Doyle sort of doing, you know, he's taking that game a step further. And I see very mm-hmm. much kind of not revealing where the plateau is. Is a canny move on Doyle's part to future-proof the story. Because if he gave an exact mm. location, he knew full well this is the age where the, the globe was rapidly be, you know, being mapped. Um, by the time you know, Lovecraft was writing, you know, just a couple of decades later, when he wrote his great lost world story at the Mountains of Madness, he was only really left with Antarctica. There was the blank on the map. Right. And even that was being encroached while he was writing it. And so I think Doyle is deliberately vague, so it, you can still suspend disbelief. Because, you know, if he said it's in Brazil, we go, well, well where is it then, you know? Right. Uh, whereas it, as long as you don't know where the lost world is, it could still be out there. It's, it's funny because... Good point. R- the Ruritanian, right? You can look on the map. There's no Ruritania, right? The Ruritanian romance just says... Yeah, we know it doesn't exist, but mm. whatever, let's keep going. <laughs> and everybody just, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But it, the, the, especially in the time with no Wikipedia, right? When, when, you know, if your encyclopedia isn't completely up to date and you go to look up, uh, you know, plateaus <laughs> in South America, <laughs> um, there is such a plateau there. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It When they eventually did get up on top of it, it's it's at the border of, I think, Venezuela, Paraguay, and mm, mm. The, what's the English call, English one? Guiana? Is mm. Guiana? Yeah, yeah, pretty different. Guiana. Different. Yeah, yeah. So there's, uh, there, there is some, you know, really high plateau. When they do get up there and explore, uh, there's almost n- no vegetation. It's all like, there's a few frogs, and it's, it's like lichen and... Uh, Prehistoric frogs? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're they are unique species, right? But they're not they're not as exciting as right. as the kind of animals we get in this story. Um, but I think I, I want to come back to uh, the racism a little bit more. But I I want to tie this into science because uh, I kept thinking about why Doyle always goes wrong with science, and in here it's it's kind of interesting because at the beginning we've got Challenger who is challenged by Summerlee, you know, where's your evidence? Um, which I think is, is Challenger's game, right? He wants, he wants to make the zoological society, you know, go fund his next expedition, right? And so he's making a sort of a, a deal out of it. But his evidence is pretty weak, right? He, he says, I, I found this, <laughs> I have this, uh, what was a wing from a pterodactyl, part of a wing and all, all my pictures were ruined. Um, then they go on this expedition, they come back and they do the exact same thing, right? Except he's got the trump card, which is the actual pterodactyl this time. I love that. <laughs> uh, which is really fun. And in some uh, some versions, uh, I think in one of the audio drama versions, uh, the pterodactyl escapes as planned by uh, Challenger. And then it, it doesn't go back to South America. It goes to... Uh, back, to, to back to Doyle's house where it hatched. I mean, uh, Challenger's yeah, house, house where it hatched. Homing yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is cute. Um, and the thing is, is what, 
what is the standard for scientific proof back then? Because we've we've got Piltdown Man, right? That's a hoax. Mm. Right. We, uh, but they're not sure it's a hoax then, right? There's a bunch of scientific hoaxes going on. Yeah. Uh, this is totally the kind of hoax that somebody mm. would perpetrate that would get a lot of funding, uh, get somebody's name in the paper, and end in disaster. Oh, I if see what you mean. Well, because Challenger now is independently wealthy. He's got 200,000 pounds, which is what? About 20 million today? Yeah, something I mean, ridiculous. It's, it's huge. And he's going to found the private museum, right? So... So he's going to. So he's had his own scientific expedition. Two of them. Yeah. He's going to have his own museum. It's like the uh, Evolution Museum in Kentucky now. Right. Exactly. I mean, how, you don't have to do your own science. I mean, you you could imagine Doyle would get a fairy museum going. Oh, absolutely. With lots of because photos. I kept thinking. It, what's so funny is that that is after this book, right? But I kept thinking oh. about the way Challenger is always saying, you know, people don't believe. Uh, the evidence is presented to them. Nothing is good enough proof. I show you pictures of fairies, and you believe nothing, right? Look at the evidence of these photographs. That's not good enough for you. What do I have to do? Bring a live fairy to you? Well, that's really hard, okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, what do I have to tell you about spiritualism? I had talked to I talked to my dead son, right? Yeah. The thing is. is What's what's so I kept thinking is like this guy needs to read Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He's going to learn about Kuhn and Popper, and then he's going to just understand. Oh, dude, you're doing it wrong. It's not proof that's going to prove something. It's going to be you know a, a, a theory that's falsifiable. Right? So he would get into uh, he would have those get they guys you know came after they had the advantage of learning I, from that's exactly right. you know totally uh, but. But it's because of such problems as these. Mm. Is, is like the only reason I don't think this whole book is a hoax, <laughs> you know, like that everyone w- is because he offers the live dinosaur at the end, mm. right? That's good. because anybody can fake up a jar. They do it in every movie, right? Right. What they a, fake up a jar with a dinosaur egg in it. Right? What a coup de théâtre! In fact, you know, he has the bones too, right? Earlier on, they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you could do that. I mean. Well, do you, so so if it were the 1990s, Doyle would get into science studies, right? He'd, he'd be the um, he'd, he'd be following the idea that science is not objective; that it's purely intersubjective, agreed upon meaning, right? Mm-hmm. So is this? I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this part of Doyle. I mean, I know about his stuff with fairies. I know about his uh, uh, psychic work. Is is this a long long running concern of his that he's uh, well, skeptical I just about think science? So. Or? I think, I think he had an interest in science and the area he was living in. Um, you know, he grew up with the sort of you know the great flowering of Victorian society, which, which where you know famously the uh, the Royal Society, which I'm sure he's actually having a dig at in this book. At one point, I think it was around the 1880s, were considering shutting up shop because we've discovered everything. Right in the fam- in one of those famous bits of egg on face. Yeah, what's you know, name, in uh, scientific history, and you know, Joel, yeah. No, I was going to say, the, the head of the U.S. Patent Office said that he was thinking of closing the patent office in 1900. Exactly, yeah, know, yeah. They're all done inventing. Sorry. And, you know, I think, you know, Doyle was aware of this kind of a kind of arrogance and uh, hubris which history, mm. you know, will, mm. will, will rapidly puncture. And, you know, he was obviously, he followed a lot of different, you know, scientific journals and, um, I mean, you know, drew a lot of inspiration from them. Um, and so he was aware kind of, by the time he was writing this book, there's a lot of these tussles of the old wisdom 
the old, you know, accepted fact, you know, being shot down. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in Doyle's lifetime. People still believed in the uh, the you know, the ether of the vacuum, and that was being yep. destroyed with new atomic theory. Um, I think, kind of, you know, precisely in this book with challenges, sort of battles with the establishment, is it's highlighting that kind of um, the way perception colours what is accepted as science. I mean, there's a famous Carl Sagan quote that says, "Extraordinary claims require extraordinary, extraordinary evidence." evidence. Yeah. And I'm I'm very much of the opinion. Well, no evidence is evidence. Once you start putting a qualifier on things, you're rigging the game. <laughs> of saying, well, we'll allow that because we like that idea. This idea, that upsets us. Do one, Sonny. <laughs> you mm. know, it's not good enough. Um, and I think, you know, Dole was very kind of aware and was, you know, seeing this happening in his lifetime. And so, that, you know, that's why Challenger is so named because he's he's the scientist. He's sort of banging his head against the kind of the walls of what has been established and allowed. Is he, uh, uh, is he, the, is he an antecedent for Quatermass? Mm-hmm. I see challenges definitely is um, in the quite amount of family the beard. tree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's short. Uh, it's shorter. Uh, in, in every uh, every movie adaptation, he has a short beard. Because uh, I mean, Brian, your beard is intimidating. <laughs> it's threatening. It's threatening to my lifestyle. I've got a little tiny beard. Uh, I don't feel qualified to talk to you. <laughs> there's, there's photos of me with uh, my beard and one of my axes, and uh, that's just that you know the. The uh, the intimidation load right there. There, you know, you don't want to piss this guy off during office hours. No, I like that a lot. Like, Jim, you're, I, I think, uh, you've really opened my eyes about about thinking about not just this story, but um, but also some of his other fiction. Like the, uh, oh, he has this great short story about uh, monsters discovered in the upper air. Um, horror, uh, horror in the Heights. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean really that 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 comes from a bit of odd scientific law that's it's still being quibbled about now. Something called star spawn or star jelly, where mm-hmm. you have after rains you get these weird globules of an organic huh. mass, and no one's entirely sure still what they are. Um, huh. it, it's always oh, just a slime mold, but they actually samples don't match slime molds. It doesn't quite fit, and it's. It's, it's something, you know, because it's, it tends to decay very quickly. We still we still haven't entirely cracked it. And, uh, you know, Conan Doyle, was, you, you, that's what is his inspiration for a, a, yeah. a horror from the heights, from these sort of, you know... Giant jellyfish in the sky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, the, you know, it occurs to me that we look at this, we look at... Uh, we haven't really talked about Sherlock Holmes. Um, is that these are really personal stories. They don't they don't really meet the criteria of the scientific method. That is, we don't have a lot of reproduced uh, research. I mean, in Lost World is, is kind of, it's about reproduced research, right? You know, because Challenger has his first expedition where he gets glimpses of this, and so the whole purpose of the main expedition is to go. And Maple White is also, is also you know, in right. that tradition. Right. Uh, although, I, I, he's supposed to be an artist, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. he reminds me uh, yeah. kind yeah. of, uh, of uh, Moybridge, you know, the great photographer. Mm. Uh, Scotsman who moved to the U.S. who went around photographing things, including South America. Um, but you get, but it's a, it's the personal narrative. It's the real strength. Like Horror in the Heights is the, um, you know, it's it's this Lovecraftian view of here's you know my perception of this, and you know what makes Lost World so successful isn't so much the two scientists are you know discussing things, which I love because I think those are really solid. Um, but it's Malone's view, and it's it's his. 
his passionate view, his, his detailed description. And again, with, with uh, Sherlock Holmes, it's the odd character of Holmes, you know, the great Asperger's hero, the, the, you know, his point of view. I mean, it, it, it's odd that we can have a love of science, a focus on science, which is all about objective, ach- achieving objective uh, truth. And it's always anchored so firmly in these uh, deeply subjective, deeply emotional perspectives. I mean, you, you, think, about, you think about hard science fiction. Um, I'm halfway through Neil Stephenson's new book right now, which is like gonzo hard SF. It's, it's <laughs> insanely hard SF. In fact, I think it's almost offensively hard SF. <laughs> and one of the things that, one of the things that happens is he just brackets out everything else. There's no society. There's no culture. There's no, there's very little in the way of interpersonal relationships. I mean, it's really like a, a giant Lego manual and, and it's brilliant. I mean, I'm, I can't stop reading it. I'm really enjoying it. Um, but but it's so it's chilly. I mean, this is this is the this is the criticism people often levy at at hard SF. You know, if you read you know Greg Egan or or Larry Niven, I mean, you know, these guys are really good at the science, eh, not so good at the human stuff. But Doyle yeah. is is fabulous at the human stuff. I mean, so I guess, I guess it's kind of interesting to see this this hyper subject. He loves science. But he but, he doesn't really understand it. Is is, uh, but I think the thing is, is you don't have to understand it to do it. That's the thing is because so many people do, are doing it. You know, just because Doyle's wrong about fairies and he's wrong about spiritualism doesn't mean he's wrong about everything. Is, because is, is he right about dinosaurs in this book? I mean, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, hang on. I mean, I mean, set aside the 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 implausibility, right? Of 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 having, but what he's describing. I mean, they're pretty good dinosaurs. They're pretty well done. Iguanodons and the pterodactyls yeah. and stegosaurus, right? I think they're pretty well done. There is, isn't it? They're cold blooded. I think that's wrong. I mean, but contemporary, but for the for the science then that was good. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about for 1912. I mean, I think it's perfect. I, I think it's better than perfect. I think it it sets the standard, right? I think that. This is what's so funny is that Jurassic Park, right? The book that we haven't mentioned, it's just this book done with. Uh, so look, yeah. you've looked all of the entire planet. There's no dinosaurs. You can't have this story. Right. It's okay. Science can fix that. We'll make right? some. Yeah, yeah, we'll make some, and then they they do, and you have the exact same story, which is guys running away. It's <laughs> a great scene where Malone is running away as fast as he can from the. Was it an iguanodon? Or Tyrannosaurus Rex or something like that. Yeah, it's like a T-Rex. <laughs> I mean, it's something really scary. Yeah, and he, he's just running for his life, and it's a hilarious scene. And we've seen it in Jurassic Park now, right? Yeah, yeah. that's what that scene is, right? But one, but here's a big difference. Well, especially the movie um, is that um, Spielberg really doesn't like geeks uh, at all. And, that's right. And so in the movie, I don't remember how this plays out in the book, but in the movie. You get this cartoonish villain of the betraying geek who is uh, played to be physically repulsive. Um, he's a coward and uh, sells them out. And he has his obnoxious software that he that he runs. And you know, it, it's remarkable how how Spielberg goes out of his way to make that into a, a into a, a characteristic. None of the scientists are any good. You know, you get. Um, uh, the guy in charge of the uh, whole expedition, I mean, sorry, the ch- guy in charge of the island who is a coward and uh, incompetent. Um, all the scientists that we see in the making of the dinosaurs don't play a role. 
Um, you know, what saves them is a nuclear family. What saves them is the CGI. Come on. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the, the, the reason Jurassic Park isn't a great movie is not because it's it's so well drawn. Well, the, the, the joke, <laughs> it's got this great, right. it's got great scenes. But, but I'm but I'm taking I'm taking it seriously. I mean, it's on terms. I mean, so it's a it's it's a kid story, right? That's the other thing is is kids and dinosaurs go together. Well, that's right? that's the, but there's actual kids in that story. That's the well, but specifically, it's the nuclear family. I mean, this whole this is so uh, such an American conservative standard yes. American movie. Yes, and that's a Spielberg thing. Is that he's 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 a curious guy that he loves kids and he loves grownups. He can't do teenagers, uh, and he hates sex. Um, so it's you know, he's always terrified of sex. I mean, like that's how um, in uh, uh, what maybe his greatest film in many ways in uh, Schindler's List. One of the ways you can tell Schindler has improved as a human being is he stops having sex. Ah. Uh, or you look, you look at AI, which is not so much a movie as a desperate cry for help. But the, um, <laughs> but one of the things about the movie is sex is terrifying. You know, you've got this little boy who's pure and good, and he's the focus. And they go to what's it called, like Flesh Town, where there's all these bad robots. <laughs> yes. And why they're so bad is because they have sex. I mean, That's Spielberg right. is mentally he's about nine, um, which is why he's such an embarrassing director. My <laughs> God. Um, well, he's he's the most popular. Uh, uh, you know, the Americans are very repressed. Uh, we we do a good job of that. You know, we we've 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 had the. We're still trying to choke through the whole Puritan you know, stuff. But what uh, you see, about, about such violence as you want, just no sex. Well, like, like, like well, nine-year-olds love violence and horror, right? You know, that's that's why yeah. we we love. But to go back to the book, the, the purple's very key. Yeah, but <laughs> the opening epigraph of Lost World, right? I have wrought my simple plan if I give one hour of joy to the boy who's half a man or the man who's half a boy. Ah. Right? It's it's a beautiful epigraph. It, it totally it 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 gets rid of the hoax right away. You know, it it tells you it, it's like um C.S. Lewis's epigraph to Narnia where he talks about how uh he did this for his children for not his children but for these these kids when they were little kids. Now they're old enough to not like fairy tales, but eventually they'll become grown-ups and they'll appreciate this again. It's it's a little you know big wink to the audience. You know this is this is a ripping yarn for boys and men who are thinking of boys, right? I want to uh, touch back on to uh, what is it? Lopez is that the name? Gomez? Oh yeah, the traitor. The traitor. So that's the fun thing is you know Spielberg he makes. There's no real villain of the piece other than the traitor, uh, and then we have, of course, the contrasting loyal Indians, right? Who I can't remember the names of because they're not that important because they're loyal, right? Um, the movies play this up often. Often it's you know Gomez is much. I think it's Gomez has a much higher role, and his justification is pretty good. I I think Roxton is uh was uh, there's a great line in this book or great paragraph in this book about how Roxton went on a private w- war that he declared himself and ended yeah. himself mm. right um which sounds like he just went out and shooting <laughs> shooting native people yes but he's um, the flail of the lord it was a righteous the flail of the lord that's right mm-hmm. well so he goes out of his way to defeat uh slavers who are half breeds uh, which is always right. interesting, the Victorian obsession with half-breeds. And, um, and yet, in Lost World, he, returns the ha- he turns the half-apes to slaves. That's right. 
They will become hewers of wood and drawers of water. It, it's it's dignified work though because they're working for Europeans. Well, <laughs> as opposed to oh my god, they're working secondhand. Europeans, they're working for the Indians. Uh, so this is kind of like the way the Europeans went into Africa, where they would set up two different, um, you know, tribes or nations against each other. Like it is totally, it is totally colonialism. That's what's so amazing is that this, this is Rhodesia, right? This yeah. is not. Yeah. I mean, literally, it's Rhodesia. Uh, Maple White Land is Rhodesia because it's got the diamonds, diamonds. it's got the monopoly, it's got the natives uh, who are going to be controlled by a minority. Um, and it's got, you know, whatever kind of genocide you need to keep the enemies down. So this this booker made me think, you know, by the end of it, you know, and keep, I'm just enjoying this. This is a, a cracking read, right? But it, it reminded me of one of my favorite colonial uh, travel narratives, which is by a Scotsman named Mungo Park. Um, you know, most of these colonial narratives, travel narratives, read like this. You know, you got the, like, Stanley and Livingston, you know, they're heroic, they're doing great deeds. Um, Mungo Park was this guy who wants to go to Timbuktu, gets into Africa, and everything goes wrong from start to finish. He's enslaved, he loses his stuff, he's beaten, he's starved. He gets to Timbuktu only because he's enslaved. He barely manages to escape the end. I mean, and it's like an antidote to this to the colonial narrative. In fact, uh, there's a, a nice novel written about Mungo Park too, um, by T. Corgesson Boyle. Um, but the, the narrative, it's the narrative itself is, is the, it's the, it's such a counterpoint to what we usually see, you know, like here, you know, these, these white men, they get, they have an adventure, they suffer a bit, um, but they mostly just win. You know, they, uh, they get betrayed by Gomez, rocks them, blows them away. You know, they, they get attacked by and captured by the eight men, so they exterminate a bunch of them and enslave the rest. You know, they, they get scared by dinosaurs, but they kill a bunch of them, and they take home a whole pterodactyl. You know, they, uh, they have a bad time with uh, ticks and bugs and insects, but they take home diamonds. You know, it's, mm. it's yeah, absolutely, this is, this is the, it's a colonialism, but it's also the colonial adventure narrative of the, of the few individuals. It's like Clive in India who gets name-checked mm. early on in Chapter 1, or uh, Rhodes, right? You mentioned Rhodesia, right? Mm. You know, uh, another example of this, uh, of, of Rhodes just going off and setting up kingdoms. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Jesse. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting book, and, and, and because it's been adapted, it, did you guys all see the 1925 silent film version? A little bit. Yes, yeah. It's it's about an hour and eight minutes, or there's a longer version, an hour and 35 minutes. Wallace um, Perry, right? Uh, I think that's right, and um, it's it's got some really good uh, claymation, I think it's claymation-style animation, stop-motion animation. Willis O'Brien, who, who was, uh, did Kong. The, the right. great Willis O'Brien, yes. And... Uh, there's there's lots of fun stuff because it's so it's only like tw- uh, 13 years after the book came out it's i think there's one version with Conan Doyle doing the introduction to the film which is fun uh but there's there's a lot you know of parallels with with it but they it, it, with the original book but they add a woman <laughs> and um the betrayer because this is an american production i believe um, the betrayer is not the Indian. It's the one of the dinosaurs. The Brontosaurus comes in. I don't know why, but decides to knock off the um, 
the the tree, and then they end up taking the Brontosaurus back to England, which is hilarious because it's it's like a modern disaster movie, right? right. Instead of just having this ter- pterodactyl fly around, fly out, and you know scare a, scare a guy out of his duties or whatever, um, you know, and seen by a cruise ship going across the ocean. It it you know <laughs> knocks down London Bridge and uh, smashes some buildings open and people run in terror. It, it's a fun adaptation. the The thing is, is when it's repeated in the sixties, right? The Gomez role is played way up. Hmm. Uh, the women's role are played way up, mm-hmm. and the feel is entirely different. There's no science at all, basically. The iguanodon is the exact same animal <laughs> as the pterodactyl. Basically, they just get an actual iguana and stick some. <laughs> it's really yes, terrible. It's they awful. stick some horns on it, and it's like, oh my god, it's terrible. <laughs> only, <laughs> only good thing about the uh, the '60s adaptation is the sound effects are really terrific. They sound like. Uh, the the dinosaurs sound like the Tie Fighters from Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> sort of screaming by. I think it might be the exact same sound later used for uh, the Tie Fighters. Um, so it, it's 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 just because when when you know it changes nations when it f- goes to Hollywood, the focus is slightly different. Yeah. When it goes to the sixties, the the focus is you know. It's on sex appeal. There's tons of sex appeal and all these <coughs> many men. And Lord John Roxton, he's the betrayer as well as Gomez wow. in one of the adaptations. It's it, it, it's very strange to see you know how the same story just slightly gets tweaked, slightly gets tweaked here and there. And and it's so reflective of the of the it, I guess it's like Shakespeare you can sort of uh, put it in different eras, but you can't change the text. Here, what they do is they change the text and keep the dinosaurs. Right. Challenger's beard can grow incredibly short or not have a beard at all. Well, he can be a young man. Well, I guess it's like when you take Shakespeare and you take the plot idea, but not the language, and you adapt it like mm-hmm. um, right. Kurosawa did with uh, Macbeth and with Lear. Yeah. Uh, but I would say he keeps to the spirit of it. I mean, some of the adaptations, they just don't care at all. Yeah. Right? Well, we saw this with the 39 steps, right? Where they just jettison the plot. And okay. just it's I just the g- basic concept. Of, Some dudes found dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> Show so, me the lizards. Show me the in lizards. Mongolia. <laughs> well, well, hang on. It occurs to me that we haven't talked about one more antecedent for this, which is uh, Jules Verne's um, right. cent- uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. That's right. Mm, because that's that is true. such a brief visit with dinosaurs that you can see there is a pent up demand for it when it finally comes back. It's it, most of it is not dinosaurs, right? It's mostly journey. Yeah, it's 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 a reverse mountaineering expedition. Um, that's you know, right. Um, they're going down, and mm. um, it's a great book. It, and this is much older. This is. Uh, 67, I think, 1867 or 76? Oh, 64, wow. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, you get, uh, it's it's similar in so many ways. You get the um, tunnels going up or down, mm-hmm. and, um, and you, know, you get a small party, um, and they're, uh, you know, they go through these, you know, elaborate adventures to get there, but um, 
And, you know, you find the hidden world with dinosaurs and vegetation. Vegetation matters a lot. Yeah, too. giant mushrooms, right? Yeah, and I, I actually don't know what uh, paleontology was like in the 1860s, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't think Byrne cared very much about science. Yeah, he cared a lot more about engineering in some ways. But, um, yeah. But, I, I mean, so I don't know how much dinosaur knowledge was there that he drew on. Because, um, I mean, a lot happened between 1864 and 1912 uh, in terms of paleontology. Um, but you know, this, this kind of, you know, it, it has that feel to me of, uh, that, that Doyle was a little, a little more than a nod, the direction of Vern. It, it, it should be. I mean, the thing is, is we're, we, we talked about the adaptations a little bit, but think of how many other, and you know, the Burroughs, but uh, Ray Bradbury's entire output is basically dinosaurs are awesome. Yeah. And, and that is got to be from either indirectly through Burroughs, which, you know, we know he was a fan of, yeah. uh, or Doyle. Yeah, it's got to be Burroughs. He, he, he kept saying throughout his life that, you know, it was Burroughs' his Mars books that blew him away, you know. And he did his own Mars, and, yeah. And his dinosaur stories are just so amazing. Oh, you, you mentioned uh, Willis O'Brien. Um, there's a great Bradbury story where he does a riff on Ray Harryhausen. Um, it's a, it's a comedy about uh, a guy working for a tyrannical director, um, huh. doing special effects uh, and he's doing dinosaurs. And, uh, at the end of it, he makes a dinosaur with a face that looks at the director and, um, <laughs> and the director loves it. He doesn't really recognize that it's him. I can't think of the name. It's a really cute story, but I'm pretty sure it's a loving tribute to, uh, uh, Harryhausen. Um, no, I mean, people love dinosaurs. That's, that's, the, I mean, really that's what creationists, that's the hardest time they have. Is that uh, is that kids love dinosaurs? And it's hard to convince them, you know that uh, you know. So a lot of creationists have adapted this crazy notion of dinosaurs existing five thousand years ago, just because you know no one wants to get rid of dinosaurs. They're just too mm. sweet. They're they're too awesome. I mean, yeah. You, the you, irony is though the way it kind of in my lifetime the kind of seesawing and some of the the strange ideas that have been sort of floated about dinosaurs it's kind of all the dinosaurs I grew up with have been portrayed wrong <laughs> I mean the poor iguanodon doesn't know whether it's fucking coming or going the Victorians yeah. thought it was on four feet when I grew up in the you know the first dinosaur book I had it walked on two legs with big spikes on its thumbs like a vicious thumbs up sign dinosaur <laughs> uh, now it went back to four feet now it's kind of it, it you can do a bit of both and the, the the thumb spikes are back on its nose like the victorians had it <laughs> you know it's kind of a there's something about dinosaurs i think they're inherently partly mythical and probably always will be um exactly. until until we get a time machine or find someone on a platter or Jurassic Park them back into existence. Start growing well, the thing, thing, with, thing with Jurassic Park, though, the, the, the thrust of um, Crichton's book, and to a lesser extent in the, in the films as well, that the kind of the subtext is, is Jurassic Park in its version goes wrong because we have created an unnatural creature. We have created a simulation mm. of dinosaurs that doesn't fit into the ecosystem of the world and therefore it will go haywire and as Ian Malcolm says it will, it's doomed to go into chaos because these are not right. the authentic beings there are recreations of where we have guessed parts of the DNA and created them in our own image well don't, don't forget the, um, the gender role right what are all the dinosaurs they're female mm -hmm. 
that's a serious problem for Creighton. Well, he solves it. Or no, Spielberg solves it. Nature will find a way. And no, notice it doesn't involve sex. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's that same. Uh, uh, it goes right back to the beginning of this book. What was it? Uh, what's that line that about sexless uh, reproduction? Uh, Challenger challenges Malone with. What's the word for it? Um, it's what it's how they reproduce in Herland as well. Twilight. No, oh, sorry, no, no. sorry, sorry. Couldn't resist. <laughs> Parthen the Genesis. Parthen the Genesis. That's it, yeah. Right. Oh yeah, and the germ plasma is different from the parthenogenic egg. Why, surely. Was <laughs> mm. it proved? It proves you are the damnedest impostor in London. A vile, crawling journalism. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I guess. Um, I'm a big. Fan. I liked a lot of um, Crichton. I, I liked his his. Uh, I, I I think I read Jurassic Park. It's very hard for me to remember now. But I read uh, Eaters of the Dead, which oh, yeah. I, yeah. is a mm-hmm. bail. Yes. It's funny yeah. because he's so mo- he's so popular that I, I don't like him. <laughs> I'm not a big fan <laughs> of popular writing. Um, but the thing is, is his themes are really, he's interested in interesting things, right? Or was interested in interesting things. Um, he did, uh. Andromeda Strain. Andromeda Strain. What a, that, and what's fun is, is that's a real science sort of story, too. Seriously science you know. You, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun science fiction, even though it doesn't feel like science fiction of the normal science fiction kind, it is. Science. No, that could. It's fiction. That could. That's inches away from hoax. You know, it's so realistic in the. And he loves hoaxing, right? That's mm-hmm. the thing. Is mm-hmm. um, Eaters of the Dead is done up as a hoax book. Right. It's a manuscript that he found. Mm. That's right. And there's. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. They did a movie with Donald Sutherland. He direct. He, Creighton was the director of it too. It was a Victorian heist movie, train robbery. Oh, the first great train robbery. Is it the first great train route? Yeah, yeah. That's fun. Mm. Wonderful movie. But he also and did Congo, didn't he? Book. Uh, it's very funny. Yeah, there's all sorts of jokes about. Oh, it's Sean Connery and Donald Sutherland, right? That's it. Yes. Yeah. It's an amazing movie. I love that movie um, uh, because uh, Sean Connery's he's wooing this uh, woman and he's talking about fitting pipes and she's like, oh. <laughs> <It's all fast>. <laughs> <laughs> Fitted, fitted very tightly. <laughs> it's like, this is awesome. It's a great heist movie. I love heist movies. And then he he did Eaters of the Dead, which is Beowulf meets Neanderthals, right? Right. Um, and and it's based on a, a very hard to distinguish in the times of Wikipedia. Uh, before Wikipedia, it's based on an actual dude who went up and hung out with Vikings from the... Uh, I want to say Ibn Fad something. He's like yeah, a an Arabian dude who goes and hangs out with Vikings. Although he he does a he does a good job of talking about how the the Vikings made their way into Russia. And the, yeah, and it's all Rus Rus guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then um, he also did one which I think I have not read the book of, and now kind of want to read now that I'm thinking about how Crichton fits into this sort of mosaic going back all the way to Jules Verne and. With this book is and and Burroughs is um, Congo. Isn't Congo? 
a lost world sort of story in the same way that yeah. and the movie is so bad it's oh god it's epically it's just, bad it's it's like a h rider hired uh sort of she uh uh-huh. king solomon's mind sort of story well there's a lot of burrows in there because intelligent uh intelligent apes as well isn't it right in the mix <laughs> right and probably a, a chunk of dc comics of flash gorilla grod um <laughs> yes yes just, uh, there's a secret in the DC. There's a, there's a, a secret city ruled over by Grodd uh, of intelligent apes. This um, this shows up in uh, Warren Ellis has a <laughs> wonderful a wonderful comic book series called Planetary. It's yes, absolutely yes. Mm. And there's a there's a there's a there's a um, uh, Blackstone. Uh, what's his name? Not Blackstone. Uh, the uh, I can't remember his name. The original name, the English name before it becomes uh, Tarzan. It's Blackstone, Greystoke, Black. Greystoke. Greystoke excuse me. Yeah, and so they they do a uh, they do a um, uh, hidden lost land of uh, of uh, people in Africa, and what they are is they're super scientists and they're all black, and so um, you know Tarzan is like, yeah, you gotta get used to it. It's the 21st century or it's the 20th century. You know, this is this is the world, a globalized you know post racial world, and um, Oh, it's a wonderful series. Wonderful. Every every issue is a loving riff on some classic from mm. science fiction or pulp fiction, be it um, Yukio Mishima and giant monsters to uh, Frankenstein to uh, 1950s monster movies. And the artist... Doc Savage, The Shadow. Doc Savage, yeah. The Shadow. Mm. I mean, it's all... Um, uh, it's wonderful stuff. Um but so is this book. I mean, I, I just, I just, uh, I thought it was, it was just so beautifully done. I, I, I couldn't stop reading it and uh, wanted to read parts out loud. It was just so crammed with story and incident. I'll tell you, Jim. One thing also that wouldn't play out today is uh, this would have to be a trilogy. Um, uh, of course, it, yes, yeah. Yes, too much incident for one mm. book. You know, we get the backstory of Challenger. We get his initial expedition just as a flashback. Then we have the whole expedition and discovery, and then we have the aftermath. I mean, that's that's easily a trilogy, right? Definitely, you can see the, the do this and the prequel, and then yep. Roxton's yep. second second expedition. Yeah, it's so much value for money. This is what this is what <laughs> makes me think. You know, this is why those you know these sort of books that stand out even after more than a hundred years. This book is still. You know, it's on the lips of people. I mean, not very many people, because most people don't read, but it's a book you've heard of, because it's got the goods. It 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 gives you value for money. This is this is the the thing. You know, you guys remember the movie Speed? Yeah. With um, <laughs> with uh, I think I yeah. think it's Keanu's big mm. first action movie. Um, I think the movie's not that great as a whole. But if you think about how much value for money it gives you, it gives you tons of value for money. First, it starts with, you know, some elevator thingy, right? Then you know, say, wow, that was a good little opening action sequence. Then there's the whole bus thing, right? Which is the majority of the movie, sort of the gimmick. And then you think, oh, the movie's over. And no, there's more. <laughs> there's, there's like a whole little thing about, uh, you know, a car, uh, I don't know, subway underground chain. Oh, right, 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 right. And it's like, huh. It's like when you walk out of the movie theater, you know, I really got my value for money. <laughs> this, is, this is one reason why I really liked uh, the recent movie Interstellar. 
is, you know, it's, it's value for money too. Well, yeah, it begins with with uh, a post semi apocalyptic Earth, and they quickly describe that, set all that up, then bang, leave the solar system, go to a huge space voyage, and then bang, we leap forward a hundred years to a you know a future space going civilization, then bang, there's the hint of a post human evolution. To, I mean, it's like two hours. Yeah, that's and and there's there's. Two planets. I think there should have been three alien planets because that would have been better because they, they mentioned a third alien planet. Maybe they ran out of budget or whatever, but maybe it was getting too long. But the the water planet, yep. great. It's shallow water planet. Got it. And then there's the weird like ice ice planet. That's cool. Um, and then there's the colony. There's the O'Neill colony that they inhabit. Huh? Oh, there's that. That's true. Which they don't even bother explaining, which I love. I mean, it, it was such a. a, a yeah, it's, it's value for money. It's it, it's like it's got lots of ideas in it. It's not just we got a budget of this amount of money. And we we need to fill two hours worth right. of, uh, and we need a couple of set pieces. It's not about the the set pieces are there, but that what what this book is really good at is every scene is not only advancing the plot, but you're getting care. Uh, I mean, I like, I just don't care about character generally because I think ideas are our primacy, but with challenger, you've got this central figure around which all the action can sort of be reflected in a humorous and, you know, bombastic loving sort of semi psychotic way. <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> It's kind of like a Hunter S. Thompson of science, you know. Pretty much, pretty much. I, mean, I particularly, um, I guess the LibriVox reading, the chap who does him, gives him this great voice. Yes. <laughs> and he's just, he, I mean, I, just, I was genuinely actually laughing out loud. Uh, it's the, it's the, the way it's narrated. Because the, the narrator just really captures that, that kind of wicked humor Doyle gives Challenger, kind of both in Challenger's witticisms and also just the... The, uh, sort of the ridiculousness of the way this maniac behaves. <laughs> nice. Well, it's like I keep saying it's Brian Blessed. You know, it is. Mm. Do, doesn't uh, John Rhys Davies play him? In there is one movie mm. version that I didn't get a chance to see. Um, and that is the 1992 adaptation, which is generally medium rated. It's not very highly rated. Mm -hmm. There was a, an immediate sequel made also uh, starring John Reese Davis, who I think, you know, probably would be a good challenger. Yeah. If they did his height right, you know, then then, yeah. Yeah. He's he's barrel chested. He's got the beard voice. He's got the voice. Definitely. He would he would work well as it. Um, I don't, I do not, I didn't manage to find a copy of that, unfortunately. But the, uh, the, the there is another Reese, um, up, the 2001 BBC adaptation, television adaptation, which is a two long episodes of television, I think maybe three hours total. Wow. As um, Malone is played by the, the actor who now I was like, who is this guy? He looks really familiar. He's so young. Whoever he is, he's the actor who plays. He's a very good actor. He's Welsh. Um, he he plays uh, the father spy on the Americans. You know that? Haven't seen uh, it yet. Americans are very very surprising how good a show it is for sort of mainstream network television. I think I think it's mainstream network television, or maybe it's FX or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, just a, it requires a lot of costume and 
voice and such like that. Mm. That uh, I would say of all the adaptations I did see, I think the 1925 one is is uh, pretty pretty darn good, uh, considering it doesn't have any dialogue or sound effects. But uh, the 2001 one is is probably the most faithful. Um, I don't think they radically changed anything, and the science is pretty good in it too, which is not the case in most adaptations. Like no. they just don't care about science, right? Right. right. Which I, I think is quite important, you know, if they're talking about coral snakes or something, you know, it's important that the coral snakes actually be in the actual continent that you're... I was showing uh, Andro- the movie of Andromeda's Train, the one from the 70s to uh, mm-hmm. my family, and I was just blown away at how dense it was in terms of, like, there was nothing but science. It's a great, it's a great movie. Yeah. He, he was a great director, too, you know. Well, I was thinking, Frank- you know, that line from uh, The Martian, right, we're going to science the shit out of this. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole thing of, of Andromeda Strain. It's it's just ruthless, and and they don't explain a lot. They just keep charging on, you know. And uh, it's I think it's, I, 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 I make that now. It's up following it. Uh, I can't imagine that that's. I mean, given the way most movies are, you know, they're spoon fed to you if they have any science in it at all. Right. Um, I don't know why they do that. I guess because they think it'll make more money. But Interstellar yeah. didn't do that bad, did it? It was not. It wasn't super spoon feeding it to you, right? I mean, some things it it, it went to pains to explain. Some things it didn't, in part because the uh, dialogue uh, sound recording would go off every so often and get blotted out by the um, awesome soundtrack. Mm. But, mm. but yeah, I mean, like they, I, I thought it was a great visualization of uh, four dimensions that they don't. They explain that pretty well, but you know, like the idea that humans could evolve into five dimensional beings. They don't bother explaining that or what no Neil Conley looks like or, you know, how a giant wave could build up on a planet with three foot deep oceans. I mean, well, I think it, what's what's clever about uh, what's the what's the name of the guy? Um, he, the, the guy, Christian no, Nolan? I guess it's the Nolan brothers, right? Cause yeah. Brothers, uh, the writer, I think, um, is that in the non Batman movies, they sort of really sense what the public understands about stuff. And usually it's like that stuff about waves. Well, people understand that a little bit now because of the tsunamis that have been, you know, uh, in the news. True, true. I, the people kind of understand O'Neill colonies because they've seen them in other movies, right? Uh, there was a movie a couple years ago with uh, one of those. Um, actually, I think it was the same actor, wasn't it? Uh, the Neil Blomkamp uh, movie with... Um, District Nine. Uh, oh, Oblivion. Uh, not Oblivion. Uh, Elysium. No, it's not, it's not the, yeah, it's Elysium. Oh yeah. no! Oh yeah. I'm not saying it's a good movie. I'm saying mm. it. They have an O'Neill colony in it, or something lo- similar to it. Well, it's a, it's uh, a big it's a big Taurus. It's a big Taurus colony. But you're right. They don't they don't bother explaining. They don't. Uh, yeah, they don't have to because it's sort of in the. Ge- geography of people's minds now mm-hmm. and i think that that is probably why Crichton works as well is is that he somehow senses in a very sort of popularistic way uh, what people know and what people grasp and i think that's conan doyle too conan doyle was really interested in interesting things and he was reading the newspapers just like everybody else that's where he found out about those fairies right He's like, oh, little story about fairies. Interesting. I'm obsessed with fairies now. 
he really gets into it. And he, you know, Conan Doyle was interested in in all sorts of weird things. He, there was a couple of um, wrongful convictions he found out about, and he got really excited about that, and ended up getting the people uh, exonerated or hmm. got to prison. And it's like that's that's the power of a guy who's really passionate about something going after it. He, I mean, as much as I like Sherlock Holmes, I think Challenger is, is more probably what Doyle was like. And I know that they're supposed to both be based on other persons. That's the sort of popular story about it. But I think, you know, if you go with the idea that every character is, is the author, uh, I think Challenger is, is, is a really I, I don't think he physically Conan Doyle's going to go wrestle you about about whether fairies exist or not, but he's certainly going to argue it with you in the newspapers and with uh, whatever celebrity happens to be in town, like uh, Houdini. There was a. Did you guys see the terrible uh, and also not bad, terrible but also not bad adaptation <laughs> of Houdini meets uh, Conan Doyle? No, uh, it's, it's called the. No. Uh, it's it's like. Finding Fairies or something like that. Oh, it's a Disney movie. Yes. I did oh, see Oh, yes, I did. Yes, yes, yeah. And what's what's good about it is that it's a good movie. What's bad about it is that it's, the fairies are real, and that Conan Doyle is right, and that, <laughs> and that Houdini's wrong. And they don't make Houdini into the villain as much as as they say, you know, well, yes, but the fairies happen to be real, Mr. Houdini. Um, so it goes for the sort of Disney sort of solution, which is, you know, it's fine entertainment, fine family entertainment, but, uh, it's not true to the, well, I assume that the fairies are goddamn not real. They're fucking cutouts from a book and put on sticks and the girls are pretending that they're real because they know how these things work. Well, kind of like the, uh, who are the sisters who started the, uh, table tapping, uh, sisters. Sure. Yeah. 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 There's a, that's one problem is that science always ends up in the, it, it runs the risk of PT Barnum, right? You know, that's, um, you know, it, it can be hokum. And you need, you need a guy like Doyle to give you the delight and you need a guy like Houdini to poke a hole in it. it. This has been the SFF audio podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Fields at the back of here, and there's a nice stream and woods you can uh, wander down from mine. There's a sort of nice little pleasant shortcut, so. Well, that's very convenient. Yeah, you don't have to watch out for any cougars or bears. Not uh, like well, a few, few strange things in those oh. woods, but. Uh, <laughs> if you hear strange noise, don't investigate. That's the rule. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.